There's your warning. Um, so welcome everybody. Um, we have about 50 plus people who are registered for the um, first AERA SIG 93 uh, seminar for this semester. Um, we're super happy to have you here. Um, if you have not um, been to one of our conferences before, um, we annually meet around April. Um, and then this year in 2024, we're in Philadelphia. Um, there's still an, a call for the Invisible College, which is a whole day session leading up to um, the ARA actual conference in Philly. So there's some information uh, that we'll share about that. But um, we're here to talk about artificial intelligence in physical education, teacher education, and the research that uh, many of us conduct, and to kind of have an open um, session and open forum about this. And um, as we get started, I'd love to hear um, your initial reactions, your experiences with artificial intelligence, whether you feel comfortable dropping a line inside the chat or just raising your hand, whether it's a hand up here or the virtual hand to raise. Um, you know, maybe this is based on your initial uh, ideas. Uh, if you watched the um, if you watch the video that we produced, um, or it's just your experience or your students' experience. So um, I'd love to hear some comments from, from the group, whether it's in the chat or just raising your hand. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I've started using uh, like BARD, the Google AI to help draft emails to like a physical activity program I help coordinate. And it just is a nice uh, time save. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with the um, with the emails or like form letters and things like that. I, I think it's a really big help to kind of get the uh, the first part started. You can literally write a, a paragraph and it makes it into a more formal letter. Um, other um, other ideas or other ways that you've used it. No one's used it for class, right? Teachers or researchers. So, um, uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Aaron. Sorry, um, I haven't used it for class per se, but um, I help with Hopper and we used it to help develop our mission and vision statement um, that we were reworking and essentially like put some information in it, ask like, you know, what it thought about that and then from that, we construct our own mission and vision. It just saves so much time. Yeah, and we have, right when it came out, like in November, December, we had some advertisement that we had to do for uh, Mason Physical Education and all uh, all programs gave like these three bullet points of what your program is and they wanted something catchy and we put those in to just get some ideas rolling. Kevin? Um, yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, the way that I started to use it, I guess, a little bit in class, at least I plan to this semester, is just to talk with students uh, about using it as an as a way to to generate some initial ideas for lessons. So, so I, th I think that the danger of, of this would be if, if it becomes a stopping point, like so if 
if our pre-service or in-service teachers, or even PE faculty for that matter, were to put lessons or instructional um, units together solely based on AI generation. But, but I think that it can be a tool very much like other tools that we already use. PE Central is a good example. It's a repository of different physical education games and activities. Um, I, I'll, I'll encourage students to go look there and to, to see what's uh, on PE Central and to use what they can after adapting it to meet their contextual demands and needs. Um, so, so it's just about, I think, intelligent consumption uh, and, and about understanding that not everything you see is going to be good and that, it, that it's, a, it's a tool, but it's not an authority. That's great. Uh, other other comments, other people that have used AI in any way or feel like there is, um, you know, whether it's your students or what, Chad? I, I used it um, just as like a, a different example of, of sort of technical language for describing like interdisciplinary team for a grant. I'm like, like, what is the value of your team? And it's like you can plug in the prompt and it's pretty good on the buzzwords um, that, you know, I guess a lot of grants like to see. And so just if there's a writer's block or, or if, you know, the examples on, you know, the web pages that you're looking at aren't quite, you know, vibing right, you can always go to ChatGPT and say, you know, type in the prompt about, you know, what is the value of interdisciplinary science and obviously tailor that to, you know, your purpose. But um, I found it's a little bit more comprehensive than using thesaurus.com you know for for different words it, it uh, it's just another resource like kevin and, and others mentioned awesome thanks chad and so we'll have a lot of time to discuss uh this throughout our uh time together um i wanted to kind of just prep everybody and just having a conversation because sometimes um seminars are run in different ways um you know uh, a lot of the people who are presenting today have also been on the Peak Collaborative, um, and that has been a very uh, conversation-driven session instead of a lecture, and that's what we hope that this is. Um, so I want you to feel free to put stuff in the um, in the chat, and if you can't uh, comment further, if you're somewhere where you can't chat, but um, you can just type in, please do that. Uh, Donal will be kind of reporting back on, on the chat. Um, so we're going to talk about research first, then teaching, and then kind of continue uh, working on um, the different aspects that, you know, AI affects in our um, our world. Um, but before I go into that research part, I'm going to introduce Emily Jones, um, who is going to talk about a KWL sheet, which I'm going to drop in to the chat. Um, most of you that got the email had it attached. Uh, we wanted to send it ahead of time if you want to print it out and write on it. If you don't want to partake in this, you you don't have to, but we, we felt like this is a good way to kind of follow along. So, um, Emily. Hello, and so glad to see you all here today. Um, yeah, in, in honor or kind of respect for this idea that some of us coming to AI conversation with different levels of knowledge and understanding, we wanted to prompt uh, everyone's thinking perhaps about what it is that you might already know or have heard or assume you know or, or have heard from different sources about what um, artificial intelligence or large language models such as ChatGPT are, um, as well as some things that you're curious about. 
relevant, what you like to know, and then perhaps just as a way to continue engaging in the conversation, if something comes up uh, that you didn't realize or strikes strikes uh, your interest and uh, something that you can walk away from this meeting with, um, jotting that down in what you've learned. We're also, as Risto's uh, noted, we're going to really focus this conversation very much around the areas of research and scholarship, uh, as well as teaching and learning settings. So on that second page, uh, we'll kind of get there throughout our time together, but uh, where do we go from here? Uh, what other ideas or uh, potential ways might you envision leveraging this tool uh, or concerns you have about how these tools might influence your work as scholars or future scholars and teacher educators um, in your teaching and learning? research and scholarship, and perhaps even service or shared governance. So uh, we'll be pinging back to the document. Uh, so if you have it printed out, uh, if um, you can fillable, uh, you can fill in the PDF in different areas, um, that might spur some questions or um, additional thoughts that you might have throughout our time together. So. Thanks, Emily. So um, as we kind of shift gears into this research area, um, I want hopefully, I mean, this works very well in person because I can see your hands. Um, but if, if you, as a raise of hands, how many of you would be comfortable if you knew that an AI, artificial intelligence, whether it's chat GPT or something, came up with a title of a paper? Like how many of you would be like, okay, that's ethical. It's it's not that big of a deal, right? Um, so the next thing, if you read the uh, JTPE article, you saw that we used um, ChatGPT to write our abstract. How many of you would be okay? Because it's not necessarily your research. It's just summarizing the research. It's formatted. Maybe some people would be like, okay, I I, I can deal with, abstract or title but that's where i draw the line so um i'm gonna take you through like a thought experiment here um how many of you are okay if i um i collect data i go into an elementary school or middle school and i have a bunch of numbers and i input the data into an excel file and then i put it into a computer program and the com and I press buttons, and the computer program comes up with this data, and then I interpret it and I write it up. Let's say the computer program is called SPSS. How many of you are okay with that as a way to? Okay, so that's that's pretty normal here, right? That SPSS runs our data analysis, but you interpret it, you write the results section. Um, so what about qualitative data? Can I? go into an elementary school or middle school, interview a bunch of students, take my field notes, insert it into a computer, click a couple buttons and say, uh, run a thematic analysis based on uh, this research. And that, I don't know, that computer program is not called SPSS, but it's called something else. How many of you are comfortable with artificial intelligence analyzing qualitative data, but you make the interpretation, All right? So now some of us are okay. Some of us are like, whoa, no, no. Like we're talking qualitative data. You can't run that on computer. But for the last 
several decades, we've been very okay with running it through SPSS if it's quantitative data. So I'll keep I'll keep going and I'll, we can open this up. Um, so let's say Emily and I are on a um, a group project. We're collecting data together. We collect data. We code the data. We use Richards and Hemphill's qualitative data analysis and groups. Great article site. And we go through and we reference this, but we use a peer debriefer. But that peer debriefer is artificial intelligence. We write. We do all of the analysis. We upload our content into an artificial intelligence system that doesn't exist yet, but will most likely in a few years. And that's our peer debriefer. And the peer debriefer says, have you ever looked at it from this point of view? And Emily and I, as two people with similar backgrounds or whatever, had not. And that pushes our thinking forward. And we start considering maybe we should, right? So innovative subheadings, is that okay? Can I use a ref, can I copy and paste all of my references and say, make sure these are APA formatted correctly, right? Some of us are okay with those things. Some of us are not, but there is no guidance. There's no guidance here right now other than, and Kevin will talk to this uh, in a little bit, about where we are in um, with our journals in our field and what we're allowed to do. But I wanted to kind of like prime this conversation with this idea of we don't have a line. There's a lot of things we accept, especially in quantitative, but we don't in qualitative. There's a lot of things we accept in publishing papers that, you know, most of us would love to do, but ethics says we shouldn't but there's no ethical guidelines written on it. So I'll, I'll open it up for a couple immediate um, uh, immediate kind of conversations and then we'll move on to how this is affecting. I know Chad, you, vocal, you raised your hand in objection. So uh, if you have anything that I'd love to hear. No, I just think you made, you made the point that I was gonna make is just like, well, you know, what, what is the purpose of using the AI for qualitative analysis? I mean, I think, Maybe there's even a spectrum in that. And obviously, this is a nuanced. <laughs> Anytime we start talking about ethics and gray, gray areas, there's there's some nuance involved. And so it's like, well, if I put my interview transcripts in there, or focus group interviews, or whatever, or uh, journals, uh, and then I just use the themes that the AI, you know, generates, I think that's one thing. But then if we kind of use it as a means to maybe identify personal biases on the research team or to try to see patterns that we may have missed, then I think there might be some value in that. Um, and so I think probably the theme that we'll see across all of this is how are you using it? Um, but then anytime we're analyzing data, it's like, well, and we'll talk about this in a little bit is like, uh, at what cost? You know, at what cost, personal cost, occurs when I use AI to do any task, you know, what enrichment are you getting from intimately knowing? I mean, this is where, why qualitative, this is a conversation within qualitative research is the intimacy that you get with the data, the, 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 the knowledge and wisdom you might glean from the participant that's, you know, beyond the research, but still personally enriching. If you're not engaged with those data, that's all lost. But um, 
yeah, I think with the qualitative data piece is it's just like, you know, what are you, how are you using it? And maybe we can all agree that just using the output themes is, is wrong. If it's used to maybe make some advancements in, in bias or, or to, to identify blind spots, then maybe that, at least in my mind, seems reasonable. Right. But we're, we're not far away from, um, you know, me assigning you to review a paper that clearly states in the cover letter, we used artificial intelligence to analyze the major themes through this and this program. And so it's going to go across Kevin's desk. It might go to Aaron Santeo as an associate editor. Aaron sends it to you, Chad, and you like, where is the check? Like, is it Kevin saying like, hey, as an editor of JTPE, we do not accept this. Or Aaron saying as an associate editor, I will not send this out. Or Aaron saying, well, Chad Killian knows about AI, so I'm going to let this go to Chad. So maybe it gets a favorable review. Like, we haven't come up with that, but that that's not too far off that scenario. Uh, I I called Kevin out, so let me let me go to Kevin first, and then we'll go to Chad. Uh, Chad, I'll yield some of my time to you first if you'd like to comment. Yeah, I was just gonna say, added to the list of reviewers, you know, reviewers biases that you know that already exist. But um, right. the other thing too is is like I'm wondering like, you know, there is some utility and some things to be gleaned from the AI output. I mean that AI output the themes that they're generating aren't random and so like i don't know if there's like if, if we require a section like you know we're using you know disclosure i think is a good thing if you're going to use it in any case is to be transparent about it but then if is there a place for a, a completely ai generated thematic analysis but maybe have like i don't know what does it mean then like what what yeah you know, we came up with that date, those data for a reason. I think that could spur additional questions and curiosities, and and it still says something that might be valuable. Yeah. So so let's look at it through the lens of quantitative research because I think you brought this up a few minutes ago, Risto. Um, and, and I'll say at the onset that I'm I'm still kind of up in the air about a lot of this stuff, and I'm I'm continuing to learn. I don't have firm beliefs, so this um, kind of uh, scenario that I'll spin out here, I I, I, I is not an endorsement. But if we look at the history of quantitative research and you go back 50, 60 years, um, there were not software programs, uh, ANOVAs, uh, regressions, um, the most modern statistics they had available at the time were all calculated by hand. Um, I wasn't there, but I'd be willing to, to bet money that when, when people started introducing software packages to do statistical analysis, that there was a segment of uh, the, the, the scientific community that was very, very against that. Because you're relying on machines uh, to to answer questions that were previously answered by humans, um, you know now that's commonplace. It would be insane to do your own statistical analysis by hand. In fact, I think if you did that, it would probably uh, do disfavor with journal editors and, pub and publishers to see that that you're calculating your own hand done ANOVAs. That that doesn't align with with the way that we do things now. So, so I think that part of it is, is that there's a shift that'll occur here over time. Um, I, I, and I think that, that we need to, to be ready for that. I think we need to understand that um, and that we need to be as proactive as we can in driving the narrative. If we don't have any guidelines or any boundaries on what is or is not acceptable, then that creates a plane where anything could be acceptable. Um, if we take the reins, 
uh, and say, well, you know, here are here are what we view as um, ethical, um, you know, appropriate use of AI in research. Um, to answer your question directly, Risto, I think that that that'll start at the level of the publishers. I think the publishers need to to have some conversations about those things because you get into issues of of authorship and copyright, and the position that many have taken is that artificial intelligence cannot be an author. But if it's not an author and it's generating content, then what is it? <clears throat> so yeah. I think that there's some there's some ambiguities around that. Um, I had a conversation with folks at JTPE, uh, Human Kinetics, when this first started, uh, when I, when AI really first started to boom, maybe uh, last January or uh, or around there. And um, uh, you know, the, their initial response was basically, "We know it's we we're aware, we know it's happening, and we really don't have." Um, you know, decided upon way to to address that right now, uh, and I don't know that they that they do uh, in this moment yet either. At some point, those things are going to need to get discussed, and I think journal websites are going to need to get updated with guidelines. Um, you know, personally, I think that at minimum, um, uh, disclosure and transparency is important. So, if AI has been used in any facet, it should be explained in a cover letter or or, or elsewhere, perhaps in a in a note, so that it's part of the actual article how it was used and why it was used but I'll, I'll stop there Aaron I saw your name uh hand go up so if you want to if you want to chime in feel free to well apparently great minds think alike because Kevin basically just said what I was going to say more the first part of his um like thoughts about like I would venture to guess that we were once here with quantitative research. And I think that this is the beginning of it for qualitative research, right? So we, most of us on this call probably didn't live through that quantitative era, but I imagine that we're going to start seeing it over the next 10 to 20 years. Like it will be the way to analyze data because how can you ensure that when you're hand coding things, and you're looking at themes that you're doing a better job than a computer that's designed to do it, right? So I, I'm kind of like on the fence about it. I haven't made really any firm decisions on it either, but I, I do believe in technology and that technology kind of moves us forward. And I don't necessarily wanna be closed-minded in the idea that a human can do it better than a computer per se. Now, do I think it should solely be done like that? No, but there might be a day where there are programs that are sold like SPSS for qualitative data. So, Well, and Vivo is probably chomping at the bit trying to in integrate AI into their analysis software. Like it would be a very smart business move for them to integrate it. So, Chad? And I think we we also need to like kind of weed through the assumptions here of, of like what how it's really how it's an analyzing like like we're kind of operating under this like it seems like you know the old view of saturation that if there's themes there they'll come out but what about salient themes that may only appear once or twice that are super relevant to the field or you know stimulate you know interesting enough salient enough points to be discussed and and in the results section that you know the ai isn't picking up on because it only occurred once or twice so like again i think we can use it for a lot of ways but 
we can never not read our interviews and we can never not have that human touch because of the the blind spots of the technology and understanding how it works and what it's actually generating because if the themes are just what's been said over and over again then then like i said we're going to miss out on some of those really interesting side avenues that need to be discussed but wouldn't come out in the output just think about the possibility though of of um like you know so if you're you're a pi who runs a research lab um in your research lab has artificial intelligence that uh can learn and grow specific to the the analysis and the theory that you do so you have kind of this um model that that you feed in articles so i would i would feed it articles related to occupational socialization theory feed it articles related to the work that we do i would teach it about the analysis that we do um uh, and, and then over time it would grow and get better at that like you could even have modeling where it's like okay i want you to analyze this so the analysis results in themes. I want you to do it deductively through this theory with additional inductive analysis. Um, I, I want you to uh, employ constant comparison as themes are developed. Like these, are, these could almost be like drop-down menus um, that would allow you to you know, do the exact type of qualitative analysis that, that you'd want to do um, and, and then have it do searches for negative cases and things like that. Chad, your point, which I think is a really good one, is that my understanding is that these models are primarily based on pulling out dominant or or, or, or the, 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 the most prominent um, patterns or pieces of information. So how would negative case analysis and things like that fit in? Yeah, and, and what you're saying there too with, with sort of like locally trained AI um, is interesting as well. And 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 so I don't know, this might be a little deviation, but like what implications does that have for doctoral training? And you know, to be able to design insular, you know, in-house AI systems to kind of generate the outcomes. Like I think, you know, for a teaching related one is like. What if we train it on meaningfulness, the meaningful physical education framework, and and you know through that and and appropriate prompts, you, you know you have some assurance that the 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 lesson plans generated will will align well with the meaningful physical education framework or sport ed or teaching games for understanding, etc. So, I just think about like locally trained AI that that for research purposes, like you're saying, you know, an, an occupational socialization theory your doc students are going to need to at least know what that means and then potentially even expand their skill set to be able to build that for their own lab or for their own interests when they yep. become independent. So that's another conversation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point, Chad. If you're growing something locally and then graduate students come up and that's how they've been trained to do analysis um, and, and then they leave, and but they don't take that with them, then what does that leave them with? They, you know, they contributed to the lab work, so it's good for the lab, but is it great for them? Yeah, yeah, I'm here at this conference where there's like a lot of physical activity measurement, like geniuses, and they're all like talking about how they code R and, and you know, all these quantitative programs. It's like, this could be our coding opportunity as qualitative researchers, you know, get, in, get into the computer science game and train our own AIs to, you know, I'm obviously kind of tongue in cheek here, but, but it, is, it is implications for doctoral training at some point, I think, um, yeah. down the road. Let's uh, let's hear from doc student, Young Jun. Yeah, uh, on top of uh, what uh, Dr. Richard uh, said, uh, feeding uh, AI can feed uh, the data. 
So uh, I would, you know, use uh, AI program, you know, to uh, uh, to implement uh, qualitative data analysis. But at the same time, we may inadvertently uh, expose or sell our participant data that is supposed to be kept uh, confidential. And at the end of the day, the AI model can be fed uh, the, the participant data and learn through it and then generate some uh, private you know, uh, knowledge that should, be, should not be publicly exposed uh, based on that. So I think uh, that's uh, problematic. Young June, great, great point. I think I I haven't even thought about the idea of moving your content in that is protected by IRB to to something that is not owned by the university or it's going outside into a for-profit company. That was a great point. Paul? Yeah, I just have a, a friend who's the grant manager for the American Alzheimer uh, Association, and he says they've added a checkbox to their proposal a document that says, has AI helped generate this grant proposal? I know we're talk not talking about grants or anything yet, but um, he advocates that it would take time off of the grant writers to just use AI to help generate those ideas. Um, you're still accountable for everything you've written into the grant. It's still on whoever submits it, um, but it would free up your grant writers to do their other responsibilities if they're not spending hours just writing and submitting these grants. I think that's a fantastic segue, Paul, because uh, Chad was going to talk a little bit about uh, that grant angle and to see like where where our ethical lines are there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, good segue. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just think like down the road type stuff, th these kind of questions align with like my my cloud thinking. So like bear with me here. But, you know, um, the first first question I have with, with any of this, even we kind of hit on it with with using AI for qualitative research is, you know, research is an iter iterative process. Science is iterative. Human development natu is naturally iterative. So I'm thinking like, you know, one question we need to ask ourselves from a personal use standpoint. So we're thinking as the user, um, as the researcher, you know, what, what do we gain by using this is a question I ask, you know, what is gained by using AI to summarize articles, to write abstracts, um, but then like what's lost from a, from a personal standpoint, a development standpoint, um, even an iterative scientific standpoint. So those are What's, what do we gain by this? Just generally speak, what have you seen that we could gain and um, potentially what's lost? Which might be the bigger question. So as we're kind of uh, getting to that first part here, um, I want to bring Emily in here um, to kind of think about that KWL worksheet. So if uh, I'll drop it in again into the chat for those of you that didn't get it the first time. Um, but let's think back to to that. So if you want to open it up or um, you want to write on it, um, maybe we can think through that. Yeah, thanks. So um, this is a, a chance for those of you who've been kind of listening and contemplating and bringing your the knowledge and experience about AI and ChatGPT to this, to this session. Um, 
what are I think it would be interesting to drop either into the chat or raise your hand about talking about research and scholarship. What are some things that you think you'd like to know? What is it? What remains um, you're curious about? And that might be partly what Chad is alluding to, or um, others have made mention about. You know, um, David Dom alluded to in the chat about what are our, our what are our IRB saying about this. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's something that's relevant to, uh, to each of us. I was sitting on a panel um, the, other, the other week, and the IRB chair uh, at one of the institutions who uh, was on the representative at the, on the panel, you know, they were just describing very openly how as long as you de-identify your data and um, put it into a large language model that it could be used to you know, assist in data analysis, and they saw nothing wrong with it. And there were three or four other panelists whose eyebrows just rose really high, right? Um, because of the concerns associated with, even though I might be able to ID identify my data and have three or four researchers in the room read that data set um, and not be able to perhaps identify who said what, um, the tracking information that is available uh, from the person who's putting that data onto the large language model in terms of where it's coming from, the descriptors of who participants are, even if it's regionally or near a particular institution, and how long does it really take a computer or a machine to identify us? A 27-year-old doctoral student studying at a Midwest regional campus or an R1 campus who's studying this particular um, uh, area and uh, is interested in, in these types of topics. So, you know, how quickly could a machine identify a participant in a different way, uh, especially with how robust uh, 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 ChatGPT and other of these AI models are? So, um, there's a lot to be considering, and um, Dom's comment or David's comment on Chat triggered that. So. Are there other questions that have come to you or you're thinking as you've been um, listening or brought with you that perhaps we could chat about? Nicolette. So I, I haven't used it and I don't know a whole lot about it, but some of the things I've read is there's still a level to, of like bias within AI. Um, and so like, I was just wondering, um, like how that would affect how data is analyzed, um, the the bias that AI carries, and then if it could account for some of the contexts or nuances of physical education, because um, we kind of talk about uh, PE being marginalized and some of the experiences of that. Um, so I wonder how it could account for that as well. Yeah, and I think that, you know, Donal, you put in there a while ago about AI reflexivity statements. And, you know, when you think about that, it, it's it's funny to me, like thinking about AI being reflexive, but also like we are asked to do that. We are all biased based on how we're looking at data and analyzing data. So would it be appropriate for AI to do a reflexivity statement and say, I've been only trained on this and this type of data. Most of the data has been done by, you know, this and this type of, you know, I don't know, like, 
I, I don't know if I would probably go that far, but there are like, there are levels to the bias that humans have. And, you know, I put in earlier, like if some, if we can teach somebody like, uh, or we can teach AI every single article ever written on this theory and then have them analyze it. That's not a capacity that most, um, you know, humans have. Kevin, I saw you. Oh, Emily, Kevin, either one. So interestingly, there there was uh, the dialogue about this about um, uh, one of the IT specialist computer programmers I was chatting with said one thing you need to know. This is a declarative statement about AI, is that it is a non-thinking being, right? And a lot of people nodded, right? Nodded, non-thinking. And someone raised their hand and said. Isn't it learning all of the time, however? So, right, as, as a human, we're processing information based on our experiences, what we consume, uh, these interactions, uh, whatever we're fed leads to Risto's notion there is we're learning as human beings and we're faulty by the biases by which the lenses we're perceiving, perceiving that information. Nicolette as well, right? Um, to that bias. Um, and so, yeah, it's not a human, but the critique was clever, is, but it's learning and it's perceiving and responding new information. And the more information that's, that's fed into the model, whether that model is um, tailored or whether that model is the public access model, it's still learning. So it mm, poses more questions than answers, but nonetheless, I thought it was quite intriguing. Okay. It's really interesting. Uh, sorry, Chad, if I could just real quick. Uh, Risto's uh, comments um, really got me thinking uh, about, about AI producing like a reflexivity statement. And does that require self-awareness? And are, are, is AI self-aware? Most of what I've seen uh, continues to view AI as non-sentient. Uh, so it, it's an, in, unable to think and perceive, right? But, but it's able to learn and able to, to grow. So Emily brings up a good point. So where's the line and when does, when does learning and growing become thinking and perceiving? Yeah, and, and I think a lot of the, like, the perception of bias is based on the parameters um, of the output that are set by the developers. And so right now we're talking about ChatGPT, um, but there are alternative uh, large language models being developed and my guess is that there'll be like informal perceptions of each you know kind of like ascribing maybe like you know the level of free speech that it, you know the output puts out or whatever and so like i think there's at some point it'll be important to like disclose that you used ai and and which one <laughs> because of maybe some differences in the way that the parameters are being set by developers. Yeah. So um, I'm going to make a hard record scratch here and uh, switch over basically on time to um, our teaching part. Um, so if you still have some lingering comments and things like that, please feel free to put them in the chat uh, regarding research. But um, we spent about 45 minutes already on talking about research specific and the ethics around it. We can come back to it, but I wanted to kind of give this space to 
um, you know, ARA is a research organization, but especially in our Invisible College, that's a day long, we talk about teacher education, we talk about issues that come up in PEAT programs, uh, whether it's retention or teaching uh, or whatever. So we're kind of outside the box in that sense. But um, I wanted to kind of think about or have you think about and hopefully put into the chat or raise your hand of how you've used um, ChatGBT or AI um, in, in your teaching process. So I'll give you an example. Um, you know, I, I have a teaching philosophy um, assignment in one of my classes and I went, I, I have these prompts that usually have before they actually do the assignment on Blackboard, they uh, post um, like they answer some questions to start developing that uh, that teaching philosophy. So this year I just put in and said, give me leading um, you know, prompts for people to, or physical education uh, pre-service teachers to think about their teaching philosophy. And it gave me five fantastic prompts that I had not thought about. And I literally copy and pasted it because I was like, those are way better than the ones that I, you know, thought about two years ago to get this discussion board rolling. Um, so like I've definitely used it in in that sense, but are there other ways that you've seen that it's useful for you in um, in the teaching setting? Anybody? Emily? Yep, I Thoughts? was waiting to see if somebody else wanted to jump in, sorry. Yeah. Um, one of the ways I've used this recently within my teacher education in my PEAT courses is um, when students are building their assessments, um, the instructions that they are providing on their worksheets that they would disseminate or distribute on Google Drive or even print out. Um, my undergraduate students uh, struggle with uh, proficiency or grade level reading. And so um, they have drafted the instructions for the assessment tool or whatever set of worksheets that they're generating. Um, and then they've put them into ChatGPT with the qualifier, please revise for a fifth grade reading level, or please revise for a non-native English speaker. Um, and, um, or please revise, they've built their content for a newsletter but revise for a particular demographic of, of language learners or developmental level, uh, grade level uh, or otherwise. Um, and that's not asking ChatGPT to come up with the content, but it is prompting and leveraging the tool as a way to refine and revise it to meet a specific need. Any other ways that folks have used it or have thought to use it in their pedagogy or teacher education? program imagine if it can do your annual review your annual evaluation that's always just like in september you're like uh insert cv man give me an annual review yes i think it'd be worth with a bunch of i think it'd be worth a, a bunch of us getting together figuring out how to code and get like build ai models just to do that i think the investment in time would pay off so much 
Corey, you nailed it there as well, your chat, uh, absolutely. Um, the IRB officer who was on the panel uh, referred to that as well, um, and if you haven't read it, so as far as consent or assent forms, always being asked to be at a certain reading level, um, so revising or refining that. Um, not ChatGPT specifically, but I've recently seen how there is live language translations occurring. Oscar, this sort of alludes to what you'd mentioned in the chat, um, but it's different, right? So I'm a, a unilingual, except I'm learning a language now, um, but uh, the new tools, uh, the new AI, you can record yourself in your native language with video and in a, a three, four minute video, and the technology is becoming such that then it can live translate um, and then that video is in a different language of your selection. So the reason it takes a little bit to process is because your lips move differently when you now are using a different language. And even the technology is quite um, advanced that in English when I make certain like mm sounds or when I'm waiting or pausing, it might sound different if I'm speaking in Italian, but the the quality of that translation is even translating those guttural sounds and those pauses that one might. Uh, it doesn't do the eyebrows or hand gestures, so you would have to do those um, on your own. But think about from a uh, from a communication standpoint, uh, advising students or recruiting students to your institution who are uh, of a different language and how welcoming they might feel, welcomed um, they may feel acknowledging that I don't speak Italian, even though the video is of me speaking Italian, um, would be a significant disclosure to be made for sure. As in, please don't respond back to the email all in Italian. I'm just putting this out there, just uh, other teaching-oriented ways that uh, you all have used it, or have, how many of you have asked your students to, undergraduate students, to look at uh, lesson plans or make lesson plans through ChatGPT? How's that? How has that gone over for you? Not not something that I'm currently doing, but something that, like, as I mentioned before, I think we're going to pilot this uh, this. Uh, fall in my class. Um, and, and I hope that it's just like another resource that they can draw from. Paul, uh, you just dropped something in there about the lesson plans. Yeah. Have you, uh, I, uh, I teach an internship class um, and I had a couple students tell me over the summer, uh, like, oh yeah, I used AI to develop half my, half my lesson plans. And I think they shaped it and they um, they were going to use that anyway. They look for supports and some loopholes to kind of make that more convenient for them. If I can shape it and say, hey, you can use AI for three of your 12 lessons, include the prompts that you're using. Um, I think that helps them be more creative and, and gives them a new tool. Some of the students had no idea how to use the AI. Um, and so I was able to teach some of the other students or have the students work together to kind of give them a new tool to develop their lesson plans. Yeah, I, I, a, yeah, go ahead. Paul brings up a good point about having students um, produce or tell you what the prompts that they used. Um, I think that gives us an opportunity to think about it as teacher educators. Uh, we're sort of needing, perhaps, 
do we need to teach students how to engineer prompts? Um, how do we engineer prompts on ChatGPT or otherwise in a manner that produces the types of information that we're seeking? Um, and in some ways, right, you can engineer a prompt and not like the answer and just ask it to regenerate and it'll give you a new one and ask it to regenerate and it'll give you a new one until you hit or land on the one that you want. But, but one of the things that we, in, in an idea of engineering prompts, uh, it does require technical language, right? Specialists of PE and, 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 and for pedagogists, we have a technical language that we share uh, in terms of um, uh, in terms of standards, developmental level, and right grade level outcomes and so forth. Your developmental um, uh, objectives that you have for learners, um, and and so how do we engineer prompts by which tailor the the responses? So and and do so in a manner that that reinforces to our future teachers or future scholars that we have to we have to tell it what it is that we want and it's not just going to um, automatically know um, how to tailor it for our subject matter. Shannon? Yeah. Hey everybody. Um, yes, so yes to all that. And I it made me think uh, last semester I used chat GPT to create a quiz. But then, you know, I felt dishonest, so I couldn't actually give it to them. Um, but it kind of goes back, and if your name is right on here, to what Nicolette asked about earlier is, you know, so ChatGPT is working only from what's out there. And so I asked for my 200 level class, the, I asked it to create a pop quiz um, about important things for a methods one class in physical education. and you know, it popped out eight questions. And so then we had a discussion about why does ChatGPT think that these are the top things, you know, and, and like STEM came up in it and technology came up in it. And so, you know, then we talked about, you know, why, why are these the current things, you know, that ChatGPT would think is important to our field. And so it was a good conversation starter. Yeah, I just uh, put in the video again for those of you who uh, may have not gotten the original um, invite to this. Um, there's a video that we produced for the ICEP Symposium in Chile about this, and it's it was something that we watched there in, in person, but um, I think it's a good, um, it shows kind of off of David's question about writing quality lesson plans with objectives. And it is about how well you're able to tell that AI in what to do. Here is the learning objective. This is what I want. I want this much time doing this type of activity. I want to teach this specific skill. And it, there has to be two tasks and two extensions. And um, here are the refinements that I want you to focus on. The gameplay should be like this, and then there should be a closure using this cooperative learning technique. And the more you give it prompts, the better that product is. And, you know, I, I think in a really, really, really good prompt, it's probably a B, B plus um, lesson plan. 
and I don't know, like that's a BB plus lesson plan is better than a roll out the ball lesson. And if they're, they're pulling it off, but like we've talked about here, like they also have to be able to teach it. There is that like development that has to happen. Like the students actually have to understand what they're teaching. They have to know how the body moves and um, you know, the content behind it. It's not just because chat GBT gives you uh, an opportunity to have a B plus lesson plan that you're going to deliver a B plus lesson. Um, Nicolette? Um, yeah, I was just going to say, kind of going off of what you said, like the roll out the ball um, lesson. I think we're, oh, we would almost be doing a disservice to students by not teaching them strategies to, to utilize this and, and how to like utilize it in a way that it can make things better because before this we had things like PE central or going to Twitter and finding lessons as far as like the actual development of lesson planning there's always been resources out there for students to find activities um, they don't necessarily have to reinvent the wheel um, but it could help make it better I think it's just important um, how in the chat and during conversation we've talked about um, how using grade level outcomes in Shape America, we can have developmentally appropriate lessons. So I think it should be included in like teacher education. Dad, go ahead. Uh, this all assumes that there's going to be human teachers in the schools in 10 years, if we want to go there for a second. I mean, that's obviously a short timeline, but yeah, I listen, li listen here. I want this on the record. So so, and I think this is the stuff that we can think about, though, related to this. It's similar to what David mentioned about asynchronous online PE. So we're in a neo, we're still in a neoliberal driven educational system where data and evidence of learning outcomes drive policy and administrators decision making. If and when an AI driven personally tailorable, self-determination theory-informed, community-based, reflective, democratic, et cetera, et cetera, online program for high school physical education students comes out, it's going to output incredible, robust assessment data for a fraction of the price of full-time insured millions of dollars space worth of equipment and time. Can we articulate, can our undergraduates articulate why face-to-face -face physical education is better than that? And can they do it in a way that the principal will agree with and move forward with? I don't think we're going to get there in 10 years. Okay. We're speaking extreme, but I think we're at the point in, with technology that we need to be able to convincingly articulate what the value of face-to-face school-based physical education is compared to some of this stuff that looks really good and is really cheap to yeah. people that are outside of our like key stakeholder circles. Yeah. So I and think Chad, th 
this was our conversation offline like earlier when we were planning these this meeting we we talked about this and you brought this up and i was hoping that you were going to bring this up is that we're one big huge nih grant away or nsf grant away from completely wiping out a thousand jobs right that if done in a way that our our students or our faculty are not at the negotiation table that you could have an ai software run online physical education class which is online physical activity class but it doesn't matter to, to the principal if they can do it and save money like and it's and it's fully funded by the nsf and that researcher makes three million dollars on a grant and they they educate they do really well but it shows hey you can auto grade these you can auto do this and it saves you hundreds of thousands of dollars per school district like that's not outside of the realm of somebody who's ambitious who's thinking that it's leading to good that goes in and and makes certain teachers not all teachers not all great teachers but certain teachers obsolete yeah and i think it's only a matter of time i think we could set ourselves up with a you know a handshake agreement as a field we could probably agree most of us anyway that that's that's maybe crossing the line but Again, in this grant, NIH-funded motivation, there's going to be exercise scientists, public health people that do this. So, like, we we can rage, we can fight, we can, you know, hope that we're at the negotiating table. We won't be. Our job is to be able to, is to articulate an evidence base. So, do the, the research that counters that. Why is school-based physical education better? We need to ask ourselves if we have a good enough evidence to be able to, you know, when this comes down the road, to be able to say convincingly, you can do this, but it's not going to be as good for the kids as what we're already doing. And I'm not sure we can do that yet. Emily Jones? This, this is not an answer, Chad. Promise. I can't answer that. But I think when we think about online delivery, whether that's fully asynchronous K-12 PE or that's asynchronous hybrid or uh, a mixture of online delivery at the college level, we've got to be mindful of the fact that uh, um, we have to be mindful of the fact that if you've interacted with chat GPT in any sort of uh, a meaningful or tangible way, it is individualizing uh, your inquiry, right? Like I can have a question about a, a term, a term or a set of terminologies or a perspective and I want to shift my perspective or I want to understand why someone, why would somebody in today's age choose to get a college degree, right? That's a different or alternative perspective by which I live on a daily life because I live in higher education. So I assume lots of things, but, but I can interact with ChatGPT in this way to really dive into concepts, content in, in different ways than if I might take an online class from somebody online, some uh, one faculty member from any institution, right? So I really get to tailor and, and use, kind of leverage this body of knowledge online. But what I don't get is I don't get the skills and competencies that I'm learning as a learner adjudicated by somebody who has 
who has and can understand the context in which I'm presenting it from or help me apply it in my job, right? So I think we've got to be careful or be mindful at least that perhaps AI or ChatGPT as an instance, for as a for instance, could perhaps be a part of our online learning that's value added. But what we would miss is that is the 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 interactions between an instructor, um, an understanding of context, the nuances of learners, um, that social interaction that that comes from being part of a community of learners. Um, so maybe just this is recorded, but like maybe we leverage the 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 wide vast amount of knowledge that exists within our field and beyond. And we really capitalize on what makes teaching and learning so dynamic, right? And I don't mean that that will dissuade somebody from writing an NSF grant or an NIH grant, but I mean, I designing. Think yeah, I think we in, you know inherently know that. I just like I don't know if we like if a, a principal who's got a budget and hates PE and you know already cares about you know what you said as much as I agree with what you said. Like I just data drives policy and we don't really have any data like learning data really because assessment's so terrible because of policy barriers right it's it's like it's it's kind of a self-fulfilling thing that we're all aware of it's just a healthy concern for our field you know david i agree with you i'd rather have somebody in a high quality online program um than a crappy face to face but i got a lot of friends or pe teachers that i hate to see that happen to and so like i think like emily said we do need to balance like using technology for you know for good of our students while being mindful that you know we're still human beings and need that face-to-face -face. i'm yeah, just concerned we don't have data to be able to like counter that yet but i think that's the advocacy piece that goes into okay let's i i can be okay with ai running some online physical education just as long as it's 45 students max to a class like there, when I was in Finland this summer, there was a lot of advertisements saying like, resist all of these like automatic uh, cash registers and things like that. Don't let them come in because if you let them come in, then those cash register employees are out of jobs. What are we going to look like if we automate everything? And that's just, that's driven by profit, right? In, in teaching, it's driven by necessity. Like we actually don't have enough teachers to actually do that. But if we don't say online physical education driven by AI is allowed if the cap is 45 students per teacher and licensed teachers are still teaching that content. I think if we just say like, oh, let's let's see how this goes or we replace without any plan of backtracking that, I think that's where we end up in, in trouble. Like if you look at all of the automation that's happening now that we are okay with, like, I mean, I don't have drones dropping off Amazon deliveries right now, but they've talked about it. And maybe I have drones starting to drop off Amazon deliveries and all those people who have been driving those cars around doing those deliveries, what do they do? So like, if we, if we look at this from a teaching perspective, like if we don't, if we're not at the table making the decisions or helping guide the policy, I think we're in big trouble.
So as we sit here through a little bit of silence, uh, Emily Jones, do you want to bring back the KWL and re-bring us back into thinking about those things and where we should be filling some thoughts in? Absolutely. Uh, right. So it's interesting. These uh, these conversations are enlightening, but they probably pr stir and, and trigger some additional questions that, that come out of this. But not only what you want to know, but what it is that you're learning or new perspectives that you're bringing. Um, I'd be, you know, jotting down some of these new thoughts. The chat continues to be really, really um, alive. Um, but uh, it would be interesting to sort of maybe sort of hear what are some things that you all have um, that are new? What have you learned from this that you maybe didn't realize? Um, it's triggered additional thoughts uh, or questions maybe moving into the moving ahead. This has a twofold value, one for personal enrichment to explain your questions, but we're having a peak collaborative on this in a couple of weeks and we can use some of the questions that you have for us all to sort of reflect in between that and also consider answering and, and discussing further during that session. Yeah, Paul. So one thing I think uh, for a lot of teachers and a lot of people out there, this is intimidating content. Um, it is hard to start getting involved with AI um, if you don't know where to start. So I don't know if discussing a framework or even like a, like a how-to AI or how-to AI in PE um, little guideline might be beneficial to those who um, are intimidated to even start. You pull up the website and you're like, oh, this is so open-ended. I don't even know what to do with this. I don't know that if that's related, but I just, something to bring up. So do you mind to drop into the chat? There was a really interesting book that you shared uh, over the summer. Um, and the title of it uh, alluded to how AI or ChatGPT might enhance or leverage my research or scholarship. Um, and, and maybe as he finds it, it was intriguing because, Paul, it sort of alluded to that because it was, uh, I don't even know what kind of prompts to generate or what it could even do. Um, so I think that that's an interesting perspective to say maybe folks just don't even know where to start with what to ask. Um, that might be interesting. Um, David uh, just put in the, the chat about Adobe Education Software. Um, it, it, has anybody played with um, text to image uh, in, in Adobe Express before? If you haven't, David, I don't know if you can come off mute and want to talk about it, but if you can, you're welcome to. Otherwise, I can share a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. I, I only played with it for like 30 minutes max. I, I like I put in like, you know, text to image, like, you know, children playing, having fun, being physically active, you know, and it was it brought in some really funky looking pictures and really distorted faces and that kind of stuff. But it was essentially what you're asking it for. And um, I think it's worth playing with a little bit more um like i said i only got a little bit but it was kind of a neat you know 
way to create even infographics or something like that. I think there's some application in the ways um, maybe creating content, um, but I think maybe for advocacy pieces or just you know things that we can include um, on some of our documents, maybe even in lesson planning to design certain ideas or activities. I don't, like I said, I haven't played with it a whole lot, but um, there's definitely a lot of power there. David, and that also, for those who haven't used Adobe Express for that text to image, um, that pulls from um, all like Creative Commons, so copyright open, if you would, or open access images. So uh, you wouldn't be infringing on copyright if you were to use to use that. So that's a, a nice um, additive um, idea for how to build images. Other thoughts? Things that you're take away or continue to be curious about. So um, we're we're coming up on hour and fifteen minutes. Um, we usually run these somewhere between an hour and hour and a half. Um, what I loved about the Peak Collaborative was we did an hour and fifteen minutes, and then we turned the recording off and let people hang out for a little bit to talk a little bit more informally or maybe have a conversation about something that you know you just don't want to say in front of i don't know 500 podcast listeners or somebody who listens to the podcast um but just kind of get some um ideas there um so um if if you don't mind what i'm going to do is start wrapping this up i'm going to make a couple announcements um Young June, if you haven't, um, if you can drop in the graduate student forum into the uh, chat. Basically, we have a graduate student forum coming on uh, October um, next month, the end of the month. It is graduate students only. It is put on by our ARA SIG. Uh, Young June is our graduate student rep, and Donal is uh, helping support that as an early career researcher. Um, they have a panel set up that will answer all these questions about how to get a job, what to do, how, what's the job search like, what's graduate life versus transitioning into um, into an assistant professor position at a teaching or research one or going some other route. Um, there will be no senior scholars there, so you don't have to kind of feel like you have to, you know, I don't know, ask questions that you wouldn't ask in front of somebody who's a full professor or tenured professor or something like that. So, um, and we also didn't want to have people being discussants on that session that the last time they interviewed for a job was 30 years ago, because it's a little different now. So um, we're really looking forward to it. I wish I could attend, but we are only keeping it for the specific people and grad students. And then Donal and Young June have put together a really good panel um, there's a flyer attached there. Again, you have to pre-register for this. So if you oversee graduate students or your friend is a graduate student or whoever, I really hope that you uh, recommend these uh, to them. Um, and then, so I'll, I'll make these so they're uh, verbal as well for people who are just listening. Uh, the Peak Collaborative on this topic is October 5th at 4 p.m. You can find that uh, stuff on um, social media as well. If you're not getting the emails, if, if you don't get emails for that, you can uh, email me and I, I can put you on that list. Um, 
Towson University is hiring. There is a, a job posting there. And so is uh, Illinois State University. Uh, so two positions that I know of, those are posted um, everywhere probably, but I know the ISEP website has both of those at the very top. Um, and I think that's it. And that's uh, 4.15 in the East Coast on the dot. So I want to thank everybody for coming on. Um, hopefully you can join our October session. We have a November session as well. This recording will be on the HP podcast, Playing with Research in Health and Physical Education podcast. SIG93 has a website that we post these, um, these webinars on as well. So sometimes when people are sharing slides and you want to see the slides and you don't want to just listen, you can watch all of our past webinars there as well. So um, thanks, everybody. Um, we're going to turn off the recording. And uh, if you want to stick around and ask some questions, uh, feel free to. Thanks, everybody.